All right, if you could join me and um, please uh, stand as I read God's word for this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles, it's uh, Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. It says this. Whoops. I just lost my place. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You may be seated. Thank you, Matt. Well, I would invite you to have your Bibles ready today because we're going to be turning to a lot of different places. Um, we are on Mark 8 of um, what does it look like to be a healthy church member. Um, and uh, as, far as, um, as far as the uh, nine marks are concerned, we're actually on the 11th one as far as what we have also established because we added a couple. The ones that we added were um, the need for um, a, a, a real robust attitude of hospitality. If you remember, we talked about that one Sunday. And then also the need to invest in the next generation. And just looking at what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish, we put those on the front end. So actually, um, we're on our mark, um, um, I think 10 or 11. Um, I'd also like for us to read this morning, um, uh, on top of what Matt was reading there, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Today, we're talking about the need for biblical discipleship. And uh, the passages that, that we have read this morning, the Philippians passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is the passage that Paul is stressing to the Philippian church um, that your salvation, although is complete positionally, is still ongoing. And we are in this process of this ongoing unfolding, this ongoing working out our salvation, not based on works, but living it out, growing in it. And then we come to this passage, and it tells us, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, so there's a process going on here, it's not have been, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So there is a, this kind of a, a step of, of growing, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So but there's this process, this steady process of growth that has taken place. Now I'd like for you to turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, not Matthew 18, sorry, Matthew 28. Um, Matthew 28, of course, a very, very familiar passage. We'll begin at verse, um, um, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's four words that really kind of 
um, give the flow of this passage, the word go. We can talk about the need here for going. Secondly, for um, discipling. Um, thirdly, for baptizing. And the fourth thing there would be teaching. And notice there, the, the goal in this passage then is to make disciples, not converts. Making a disciple is, I guess, more robust than a convert. A convert is a, you know, someone who's, who's entered into the family of God. We talked about conversion and regeneration, those words really describing that instantaneous time when, when God breathes new life into us. But a disciple takes it beyond that. And so what we're concerned about then as a church is, is that we're, we're yes, we, we obviously want people to come to know Lord, the Lord. We want them to be um, drawn by God into his family. But we're concerned then about what do we do with them after that? How do we grow them to where God wants them to be? So let's ask ourselves a few questions this morning. And uh, the question I want to begin with, actually I want to I begin with a, a statement by Mark Dever. Um, and just, just read it and think about it. Some today think that one can be a baby Christian for a whole lifetime. Growth is seen to be an optional extra for particularly zealous disciples. In other words, it's okay to be a baby Christian. It's okay to be shallow in your walk with God. It's okay just to kind of just, just do enough. But there are some really zealous people who, if they really want to get into it, if they really want to just kind of pour into what it means to follow God and being a Christian and want to be really diligent. They're the zealous ones. Well, let them do that. But we just, you know, run-of-the-mill Christians, we'll just kind of, just kind of, you know, kind of soar, just kind of, you know, just gently do our Christianity thing. And ultimately, um, we have just a nation an American culture, Christian culture, that for, at least from my perspective, and I think also from Mark Devers and others who are looking out, that it's really a baby Christian culture. I just want you to think about this. What happens when a baby doesn't grow? What happens when a baby doesn't grow? Let me give you the first thing, at least I'm coming up with. It will need continuous care, right? What do you have to do with the baby? You've got to change its diaper, Babies don't usually change their diapers. Now, as they grow up a little bit, sometimes they go get the diaper out of the diaper bag, right? But they need their diaper changed. They need to be fed. And what happens when they don't get the food that they like, right? They, they need continuous care. They cannot be left alone, all right? Feeding, diapering, keeping a schedule. They need to be protected because they don't know what's dangerous, Okay, so they need constant care. Secondly here, this, this baby will have limited joy. Its, it's measurement of joy is this. Peekaboo! <laughs> Peekaboo! <laughs> I mean, that's as far as their joy goes. Or maybe when you tickle the baby or when it sees you, there's some joy. And, but it's limited. It's, it's, it really doesn't go that far. Much of the joy, though, of a baby is self-centered joy. That's what I'm getting. I'm getting what I want, therefore I am happy. Um, the next one is, it, this baby can only have indirect service. In other words, 
This baby only affects other people indirectly. The baby doesn't get up that morning and say, you know what, I want to, I want to bless Matt Dodson today. Matt, come over here, I want to bless you. No, the baby gets up and might bless Matt because Matt is watching that baby with his wife, you know, in the child care, or maybe they're babysitting the child, and oh, it's so cute, and it's precious, and look how it did this and did that. So it's, it's really a service that is a byproduct of simply being a baby, right? Oh, it's cute. It's limited. It can't do much because it doesn't have the ability to. It hasn't developed that far, okay? So it brings others joy. There is gratitude for the baby. Um, sometimes this indirect service is the fact that because there's a baby and because you're caring for that baby, you have to learn patience. All right? Or you have to, you know, manage your anger, right? So, so the, the, having that baby is, is, in a sense, having some indirect service to you. It doesn't know it, has no clue about it but you're being affected by that, right? So what happens when a baby doesn't grow? It'll need continuous care. Agree with that? All right? It will have limited joy. It can only have indirect service. Now, here's the, here's the kicker, right? What happens when a believer doesn't grow? They will need what? Continuous care. You agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I realize we're not talking about diapers and stuff, but they will need continuous care. Um, they will have limited joy because they haven't grown to understand or to experience other things that truly will bring them joy. So much of their joy is still going to be self-centered. It's going to be about them. It's going to be about what they can get and what makes them happy. They'll only have indirect service. Other believers, other people who are in the church who are trying to minister to them can feel gratified that they are being used by God to minister to them. It's indirect. It's happening, right? When the church is made up of baby Christians, it will, out of necessity, lean toward giving attention to the self-centered needs of children. I mean, if, if... if this church was full of baby Christians, first of all, no one would be able to lead worship. Or you'd all want to lead worship, even though you couldn't lead worship. But you'd be upset that someone else is leading worship. And I'd have to come in and separate you two because you're constantly fighting about who's going to lead worship. You see, you see what I'm talking about? I mean, immature baby Christians, if a church is full of them, means there's just going to be tons and tons of work to do for that church. So, what do we do when we have a bunch of baby Christians? We create programs for baby Christians. We solve baby Christian problems. And the church ends up constantly at this place of servicing the needs of baby Christians. Baby Christians go into a church and say, what does this church have for me? Okay? Because they're only thinking about themselves. They're not thinking corporately. A baby doesn't think about, you know, how can I really be a part of this family? What, what way can I enhance it? How can I bless it? How can I give mom and dad a break? Doesn't think about that. Says, 
I want my bottle and I want it now. Wah. <laughs> right? Okay. So just using the same analogy, that's often what happens with believers who are not willing to grow, who don't grow for whatever reason. All right? Add to that now what will also take place. There will be spiritual defeat. Why? Because they don't know how to deal with problems. They don't know what to do with their struggles. They don't believe they can change. It's oh. um, a nice touch. I need a very mature Christian to come along and help me with this. I think it's right here. Um, there'll be, um, there we go. There'll be guilt. They won't know what to do with their guilt. There'll be hostility because because they will, they will use fleshly mechanisms to get what they want to accomplish their purposes. There will be division because they're not concerned about unity because it's their own self-interest that are really important to them. There'll be depression because they don't have solutions. They don't have an answer. They don't have a proper way out. Also, they will not be prepared for the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But they're not even at the place where they can even measure what those things are. Now, I realize you don't have to teach a child how to sin, do you? Just kind of, it's just naturally there. But to teach a child how to deal with that sin and to acknowledge that sin and to recognize that it is a sin, that's a lot of work, okay? Ergo, if we have a church that is full of baby Christians, it's just going to be a lot of work, isn't it? Especially if the church just says, you know what, that's, I guess, where they're going to be. Now, we must not settle for baby Christian status because it drains everyone and it will drain the church now but also understand this i want to make sure the pendulum isn't swinging too far a healthy church is always should always probably always will have what baby christians but those baby christians are going to be present in the context of maturing christians who will then be able to minister to those baby christians and take them down a path so that they will be growing right every couple that has a child is likely going to have a child that is immature, right? I mean, the child doesn't come out and say, you know, I know the world. I'm now going to be the president. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Obviously, it doesn't. That child has to be nurtured, has to be groomed, has to grow. Okay, so, so there's always going to be the presence of, of baby Christians, but um, we must not settle for that. We must just not say, Let's just leave it there. So, why should believers grow? Here's just some basic reasons why believers should grow. Number one, Jesus is our example and he grew, right? Luke 2, 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So as our example, and, and it's not that Jesus is only our example, but he is our example, um, he did grow. Secondly, 2 Peter three eighteen. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's commanded. By virtue of Peter saying that, we are commanded to grow. 
So in other words, it's not like, well, I have the option. It's a smorgasbord of things I could do as a child of God. No, you're commanded to do this. This is what it means to be a child of God. You are going to be pursuing growth. You're commanded to do that. So the decision to say, I want to stay in baby Christian status, really is a decision of disobedience. However, that decision of disobedience oftentimes is rationalized away as, eh, I'm not a zealot. Those people who really want to excel, they can go do that. But I've pretty well got all my things together. All right? It's uh, believers grow, thirdly, to be Christ-like. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son. That means to be Christ-like. So we grow because we have, as part of God's plan, this pursuit of being like Christ. And now certainly, when, when we're covered with the righteousness of Christ, we, we are as righteous and as, and as perfect in God's eyes as we can be because it's Christ that is the measuring stick. But then we're also told um, to be like Christ. In other words, the, the practical outgrow of that is that we are to be what we are. Kind of confusing, I know. Be holy, for you are holy. Because you are holy, you now have this ability to grow and in practice be what you are positionally before God. All right? Fourthly, to avoid problems. We should grow to avoid problems. Um, Hebrews chapter 5. Turn there, if you would, please. Hebrews 5. I think you have the passage there. Hebrews 5 and verse 12 and following says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. I, I sure hope God is never saying this to me. All right, I mean, this, this is embarrassing if this were the case. But this is what he says to, to those who are the recipients to the Hebrew here, people. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you, you need some... Someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is what? Unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so the ability to distinguish good and evil comes as a result of growing in Christ, being in that place of maturity. If I stay on milk, my ability to be able to be discerning is very, very limited. Okay? So it's important that we, we grow. And Ephesians 4.16 will not be fulfilled if we um, are not growing. And that would be um, this. For from whom... The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the, the body of Christ is not able to function in its proper capacity if you are not growing. So a church that is immature, that is okay and is settled with shallow... Um, immature believers is not going to have the equipment necessary to do what God calls the church to do. 
because all those joints are not connected and are not nourishing one another. You need all the various parts of your body to be working together, right? That's the point here. And if there is one part that isn't working quite as well, it does have an effect on another. I suffer from mouth sores. Anyone else here do that? All right, one little itty-bitty mouth sore can affect my whole body. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing how just one little mouth sore could be so painful, so consuming, it just, it drains me. All right, but that's what happens. All right, so, so why should believers grow? Well, there are five reasons why. Now the question is, how are believers to grow? And what we want to do right now, what I want to do, is just kind of go through this path of the word salvation and just make sure that we see how it is being used in Scripture and we'll find out then specifically the, the, the section that growth is talking about here. All right, first of all, this preparatory salvation. This is when God, before the creation of the world, already determined whom he was going to draw to himself. So God's plan of bringing us to Christ in an eternity past. And we read Romans 8, 28 and 29. And um, so this has already taken place in the past. So there's, there's a sense in which that your salvation then has already been laid out. Secondly, we have positional salvation. This is your justification. This is what takes place at the point of your salvation. Okay? I know this is theology. It's you know, heavy stuff, um, and there's coffee all over the floor, but um, it's okay. We need to, I mean, you know, you need a good cup of coffee anyway with, with this stuff, right? So we have election justification, the moment of your salvation, all right? Then there's what's called progressive uh, salvation, which has to do with sanctification, Okay? Big words, sanctification, and, and, and the doctrine of sanctification is saying, I am slowly becoming what God says I already am. Okay? Um, and what happens at justification is God declares me righteous because I am now clothed with what Christ accomplished on the cross. So when God looks at, at, at me, he looks through the lens of the the, the clothing and the righteousness of Christ, and he says, you are holy because you're in Christ. But in practice, I still sin, right? Anyone here still sin? Any, anyone? Just, I mean, you know, you know. There's, all right, there's a couple of you. All right, good. Um, <laughs> all right. So you can be truly, before God, be as righteous as you can ever be. because It's because of the cross. It's because of the gospel, Okay. But now, in your Christian life, God is calling you by practice to pursue being what you are in Christ. So that two years down the road from your salvation, you're a little bit more like Christ than you were two years ago. You've progressed. You've grown. And it's not, like, it's not that you're working, you're working before God to say, look at me, aren't I great? No, this is just what a, what a child of God does. They grow. You're not trying to impress God. You're trying to simply do the things that God has called you to do, and the result of that will be that you will grow in Christ-likeness. Okay? That's sanctification, and we call it this section here progressive salvation, and ultimately it will be progressive sanctification. All right? Then there's prospective salvation. Ultimately, this is when you are glorified. This is the end of your life, whether you die or whether God takes you home through, I believe, the rapture. All right? 
He takes you home. You're going to be glorified. You're going to be taken up into glory. And here is the, the verse, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what Peter is talking about, the outcome of your faith, isn't you know, the fact that you're justified. It is, it is the salvation being finalized because you've been taken out of this world and you're stepping now into eternity, into heaven with God. So the word salvation is used in these four arenas, right? In the past where God determined your salvation, the actual moment of your salvation, this pursuit to be Christ-like, all right, which is called the, your, this progressive salvation, and then there's this being moved into glory, okay? And, and Christian growth then is in what section? It's the progressive salvation, and, and, and often now it's called the doctrine of progressive sanctification, okay? So another way of saying Christian growth is the doctrine of progressive uh, sanctification, all right? I'm sorry if the print on there is really, really small for your passage, but I at least wanted to give you something to work with. All right, so here's sanctification in church history. So we're just going to kind of go through church history a little bit and just ask ourselves the question, how was Christian growth taught? How was it experienced? What, what did the church say throughout church history? Some of you have seen this before, I'm sure, uh, especially if you sat in my counseling classes, but I think this is important to note. The Dark Ages, um, which would simply be, you know, the church that was in existence back then, um, which we, you know, would, we would call at that point in time was called the Catholic Church. That simply means the, the universal church at that point in time. And the Dark Ages, if you remember, was a time when people weren't sitting around reading their Bibles. The, 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 the Word of God was kept close um, to those that were that were officially a part of the church. Only, only priests and those who were part of the church had the right to have those. In fact, the word of God um, wasn't, I mean, there weren't too many copies of it. If they were, they were chained so that no one could steal them, that kind of stuff, okay? During, during that part of church history, this is what would happen as far as Christian growth is concerned. I gotta kind of, gotta back this up, right? Because you, all right. Over here is the beginning, all right? The pursuit toward Christ-likeness. Here we go, all right? So what would happen is I would do good works. I would, I would give money to the church. And then God would, would grant me grace. And so I would step up a, la, a little bit on the, on the stair, so to speak. And then I would maybe, um, you know, I, I would help someone who was poor and needy. I might give them some food or something like that. And so, so then God would then give me some more grace. And so life was full of these doing good deeds, and then as a result of getting more grace. Now, I'm not saying this is how it works. I'm saying this was the attitude that many had during this time. So what you have here is a, is a works approach to your Christian growth. And in particular, in this kind of a scenario, it ultimately was a works approach to ultimate salvation. So I had to do good here, and if I did something bad, I had to go to the priest, and the priest would say, you're forgiven, but you have to do penance, and so you go do penance, or you have to go do something, and, and, you know, and, and whatever it might be, and ultimately you'd have to do that, and then grace would be granted to you. So you're always in bondage with this because you have to do more work, and when you did more work, then maybe you would get grace to step you up a little bit. Life was just one long staircase. Anyone like stairs? 
I mean, this is, Christian growth then would, would, would be like just looking at this one huge, huge staircase and saying, how do I get up there? I've got to work. Well, how do I do that? There's only so many things you can do, but if you do them, oh boy, you, you're on your way. Okay? My friends, that's just drudgery. That's labor. That's bondage. Okay? Um, all right, so the IOG would be infusion of grace along the way there, if you caught that. All right? Then there's perfectionism. I'll give you a name. Um, John Wesley. Um, and Wesley um, was, the, uh, was the father of what was called Methodism. And much of his teaching ultimately went this direction. Um, and uh, basically this is what, what was taught as far as perfectionism is concerned. All right, so you're, you're now a child of God. You've entered into this relationship with God. But as you are growing in Christ, uh, something happens. Some experience takes place. Some kind of a, I'll call it a spiritual zap, boom, that ushers you now into this position of maturity or perfection. All right? Um, now, just because I want to help you connect dots and help you understand how this fits with maybe various denominations or things, just uh, let me give you some, some anchors to kind of put this with, okay? Um, the Nazarene Church historically would teach this. They actually believe that there is this place of perfection that someone can get to where they are no longer sinning. Okay? Um, much of the Pentecostal movement believes in this kind of thinking, that, that there is this spiritual zap that takes place that ushers you into this, this new place, this new realm, so to speak. And many times that could come under the guise of speaking in tongues, um, or having some kind of a word of knowledge. The charismatic church would be in there too. Okay, this is, and, and sad, sad to say, e even in some other, I want to say, you know, Baptistic context, there is this attitude that is there. Now, let's look at the next one, because the next one is much more prevalent in our Christian culture. Modified perfectionism. Well, what does that mean? Well, if perfectionism is, is basically living your Christian life looking for and finding that zap that's going to usher you into the heavenly, so to speak, in your Christian walk. Modified perfectionism is going through your Christian life looking for lots of different spiritual experiences and zaps that will usher you higher and higher as you go. Okay? What could those zaps look like? It could be going to camp. It could be, you know, going on a retreat somewhere. Um, it could be going to a conference. It could simply be, you know, going to church and, and something that happens there. It could be being a part of a movement. Um, I've heard people talk about, you know, their wilderness experience, meaning they've gone up into Yosemite, they have sat on a mountain, and God, you know, revealed something to them, and it was, it was a zap, so to speak. Or maybe it's a beach experience. Now, let me ask you this. Is there anything wrong with camp? Anything wrong with a retreat or going to a conference? Is there anything wrong with going to the beach? No, just make sure you have flip-flops and sunscreen. What about going to the mountains? No, absolutely not, okay? Um, but if, if, the, if the purpose here and the attitude here is that somehow these are experiential things 
then God is going to, you know, he's going he's gonna to usher me higher. Um, we're, we're kind of in dangerous territory. Let me give you a couple of examples. 2006, I went to, um, to Israel. In fact, I went with, with Rebecca to Israel, um, and uh, the Brights, or at least Regina and Allison was there and a few others. Um, but it's interesting, as we gathered with other people from other countries, it was like this was, this was going to be for them this huge spiritual experience that, that was so unique and, and, and so treasured that it was going to take them. And so they had these places where you could get baptized in the Jordan. Um, is, it, is it any more spiritual a baptism if it's in the Jordan or if it's in some murky pond somewhere? No, one might be cleaner than the other, but absolutely not. But it's this thing of, well, I'm, I'm here in Israel and I'm getting baptized in the Jordan and wow, and you know, oh, and, you know, ah, whatever word you want to put in there, right? But see, there, and there's something in our flesh that just feeds on that that wants these experiential things and thinks that the experience of it is what's going to take me higher. Now, let me tell you something. I loved being in Israel. Number one, that's where I was born. Number two, just because it, it, it did kind of, I put it this way, it took my, my reading of the Word of God from black and white to technicolor. Just kind of put color on it and put some topography. You know those maps in the back of your Bible? Now, the, when I read them, there's like bumps on them. You know, I mean, you can kind of, oh, that's where that is. And that, I mean, it's just, it, it, does, it does help. So there certainly was an experiential side. But, but get this, it wasn't like, oh, oh, God did something in me, and now I'm being ushered higher. And See, we're, we're, we've got a completely wrong view of what Christian growth is like. But there are many people within the body of Christ that are, they're looking for the next experience. They're looking for the next zap. And, and it's, it's the zap, they think, that's going to take them further in their walk with God. And many times what happens is the people are not spending time in the Word, studying the Word, in prayer, being a part of the, the normal disciplines that the Word of God speaks about over and over again. They're just kind of setting those aside, and they're looking for growth, get this, that is immediate, that is instantaneous, that is easy. See, a spiritual zap simply means I have to go and bow. It happens to me. All right? Now, there's another way this happens. You may remember this. A number of years ago, um, there was what was called the Toronto Blessing. Do you guys remember that at all? It was like God and his Holy Spirit was being poured out in a particular church in Toronto. And so people were coming from all over the world, literally, and coming to Toronto to experience what was happening there. Apparently, the heavens parted and the Holy Spirit was being poured out right there in Toronto, but kind of one particular location where there's a church and people. I mean, it was just unique, all right? And then a couple years later, there was a blessing in Pensacola, Florida. I used to work for, well, I used to work at a church where we had a Christian school. And because I was one of the pastors on staff, I was, um, I had the privilege, opportunity to represent the school um, at some colleges. There's a Christian college down in Pensacola called Pensacola Christian College. How unique, right? And so we'd go there and we would represent and whatnot. And 
we were staying there over a Sunday, and I was with my friend Randy Bachman, another pastor. I said, Randy, we're here. Where are we going to go to church on Sunday? And he looked at me and says, no, 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 no. I said, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so we ended up going to Brownsville Assembly of God, not because I was wanting to go to Assembly of God Church, but because that's where the blessing was happening, not because I wanted to get the blessing, but because it's like an opportunity to go see, all right, I want to go to the horse's mouth. I want to see what's happening. And it was so interesting. When we, when we parked, we looked at all the license plates in this parking lot. And they were from, you know, Arkansas and Oklahoma and California and Manitoba and Korea. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't that, wasn't that bad. Um, But just, I mean, they're from all, really, all over the place. People were gathering because in their mind, a spiritual zap was being poured out in that context. And people were frenzied up about it. If you're, if you're going someplace already anticipating a zap, guess what? You're likely to get it. Right? I mean, that's just the way it is. Because everyone else is coming expecting that. And so they're all emotionally charged and they're coming. And it, so, so get this, this. This zap mentality is so much a part of our Christian culture. You say, well, nah, I don't know about the people I know. Well, maybe not in such grand forms, but in smaller forms. Okay? Now, we can talk more about that, but, uh, you know, these are, these are some ways that, that people pursue their growth in Christ. And, and I would say that those, those ways are not what Scripture teaches. All right? Now, progressive sanctification ultimately is a steady growth applying the the spiritual disciplines that God has established in his word, which means reading the Bible, spending time in the word, meditating on the word. Sometimes it involves prayer and, and fasting, and um, it, can, it, you know, it involves things like you know, participating in, in, in ministry, using your gifts for the glory of God, gathering with the church, being a part of a small group. I mean, all those are just natural parts of, of, of what a church looks like and what it means, and God uses all those things as channels of his grace to grow us. And along, along the way, you may have what's called a grace awakening. Have you ever had one of those times when you're just, you're reading God's word or you're sitting in church and you come to a verse and it's just like, just like God just comes and just goes and wakes you up and just says, look at this. Would you look at this? And so you look at it and your heart is warmed or you're convicted or you're, 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 you're just um, overjoyed because of what God is teaching you. Now, it hasn't, it hasn't taken you to this new plane in your Christian walk, but it has taken you to a place where you're realizing there's a need for growth or there's a need for change, and so God is filling you and strengthening you along the way. It's a steady growth process, okay? And there will be, there will be experiences in that. All right, I mean, anyone here have a, a relationship with God that is void of an experience? You know, I talked to God yesterday. Well, what did he say? I don't know. Well, his word is him speaking to you. And have you ever been emotional about his word? I hope so. I mean, God's given us emotions for a reason. This is experience that's happening when we're spending time here today listening. This is all part of experience. But if experience is all we're after, then go to a Raiders game. You'll have an experience. Okay. So um, we're not looking for spiritual zaps. We are looking for 
times when the grace of God through the word of God by the spirit of God is ministering to our souls, which is so different because the, the spiritual zaps bypass, usually bypass the head and they are just emotional things, okay? Now, broad strokes, but things for us to consider. And just think about the passage of scripture. Let's cut a couple of, of passages. We already read them. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound easy and instantaneous? Work out your salvation. I wish my weight loss could come simply, easily, and instantaneously, right? Absolutely. I wish the problems that I have in life would just go away easily and instantaneously. That's what we desire. And for whatever reason, we've created a Christian culture that says, that's the way it happens with God. And the reality is, it does, as far as God justifying you, declaring you holy. But as far as you're progressing now, practically becoming like Jesus Christ, it's working out that salvation, which means there's going to be sometimes a discipline, sometimes a wrestling, sometimes of of sweat, as well as plenty of times of, of joy. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is ultimately all because we want to glorify him, and he is being glorified by what he's doing through us. The other one is um, what we read also earlier, and that is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, talking about Christ, from one degree of glory to another. So slowly, step by step by step. Now, this is not the same thing as work and grace and work and grace. This is simply grace. This is simply God growing us. It's not, it's not saying, well, you're, you're not getting that grace until you do this. No, you've gotten everything you need at the cross. And now you're growing to become like Jesus Christ. So having said all that, I want you to listen to Mark Dever one more time here. And he's talking about Jonathan Edwards, this is what he says. In his treatise concerning religious affections, Jonathan Edwards suggested that true growth in Christian discipleship is not finally mere excitement, increasing use of religious language, or growing uh, knowledge of scripture. It is not even an evident increase in joy or in love or concern for the church, even increases in zeal and praise to God and confidence of one's own faith are not infallible evidences of true growth. What is? According to Edwards, while all these may be evidences of true Christian growth, all right, that's important to note, while all these may be, the only certain observable sign is a life of increasing holiness rooted in Christian self-denial. The church should be marked by a vital concern for this kind of increasing godliness in the lives of its members. So Christian growth is not something going from one experience to another experience. It is the steady pursuit of being holy. It's a steady pursuit of becoming like Christ. Okay. Jerry Bridges has written a, a number of books. Probably his most famous book is what? The Pursuit of Holiness. This is, he was wrestling with this, and he's laid it out. And After he wrote that, he's like, wait a second, I've got it. Think more practically on this. And then he wrote the practice of godliness. Right? And then he wrote the disciplines of grace. After 
he wrote those, those two. Just great resources that we will have available for you in our bookstore, or yeah, in, in a few weeks, but just letting you know, all right? Some great resources. And now, let's think now about the next question. How is the church to be helping people grow? Because if we're talking about being a healthy church, it's important to understand what are some of the problems out there, right? The need for growth. We don't want, we don't want a church of baby Christians, we're okay having baby Christians as long as we're doing the right things with the baby Christians, growing them. We want to have a proper picture of what growth looks like. We just kind of touched on that. There's a lot more to say. But then how is the church to be helping people grow? And there's three main things that, that I really felt impressed to, to bring to your attention this morning for us to consider as a church. Right? First of all, this. The church must have a radical change in its thinking regarding how to help people grow. Let me, let me put it this way. Remember we talked, I talked earlier about, you know, if you have a bunch of baby Christians, the way you deal with having a bunch of baby Christians many times is create programs to meet the needs of the people that are in your church because they're baby Christians. You know, so you have a divorce recovery group, right? Fine, they're, they're taken care of. You have the, you know, the addiction group. And, and there's a need for, for these things, all right? I understand that. And you have, you know, this program and the next program and the next program and the next program and all these programs to help these people. But now you have all these programs, guess what? You've got to have workers for all these programs, right? Boom, 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 worker, 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 right? So you've got to have all these workers. Now you've got to have people that are making sure that the workers are trained and are doing the right thing for all those different programs. And you've got all the administration and the management of all those programs. And it just goes on and on and on because all you're doing is servicing problems, serving, servicing needs. There's an element of truth. No church can, can function without some kind of a structure, right? have to have that. Great little book, um, we will have it, called The Trellis and the Vine. And um, one of the things that's great about this book is, is this, whole, this whole picture, all right? The purpose of a trellis is to be strong and to be stable and to be a structure upon which the vine can grow, right? But the purpose of a trellis is not to draw the attention to itself, Okay? Now get this. If we're spending all our times running programs, we're spending our time and our effort on trellises. And if there are much more trellises in the church than there is vine work and vine tending, then we're really missing the boat. And it happens by default. There is a real need. Some kind of a program is established to meet that need. But now the, the actual structure and the function becomes the focus and attention as opposed to the actual vine work, the people. And so now you have this, this huge, huge structure. And sometimes this huge structure is there because the people want to say, look at our structures. Look at our trellises. Aren't they wonderful? Aren't they great? We've got... Trellises for this, we've got trellises for that, trellis, 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 trellis. But what about the vine? Where's the vine work? Well, that happens. And what happens is then we, we, we spend all of our time and efforts on that. Let me, let me paint a little picture. Is it easier for people to come and to serve the trellis, to do work for the trellis, than it is actually to do vine work? And if I say to you, hey, you know, we need someone to come and to, you know, to do the PowerPoint or to, you know, help set up chairs or to, um, 
you know, hand out bulletins or whatever. Much easier for people to say, yeah, I can do that. But what if I said, hey, I want you to talk to these people about the Lord. Can I go set up chairs, please? Right, you see what I'm saying? And what we want to do is recognize that there, there, there is an element of trellis work that needs to be done. There has to be structure. We talked a little bit this morning about home groups. Those home groups are a structure we're trying to put in place because we want to make sure that we're shepherding the people that are part of this church properly, but we don't want so much structure that we're not actually doing vine work, that we're not spending time with people and that there aren't people interacting and growing and opening the word and sharing and praying and talking and encouraging. Okay? It's much easier for us to, to by default, Say, hey, I'll move tables, I'll do this, I'll that. It's much harder for us to say, I'll open the word, I'll talk to people about the things of God. But if we're going to be a healthy church, we want to be training the body of Christ to do vine work. Right? The, the trellis work needs to take place too, but we want to make sure that we're not allowing it to eclipse the vine. Are you guys with me here? I mean, I, lo- I love the picture because what's the point of a trellis if there's no vine? You know, and someone might look at a, a trellis with, a, you know, just like that picture there with this, this, little, this little plant growing there and say, huh, I think a white trellis would look better actually than, have you thought about watering the, the plant? Have you thought about putting fertilizer down? Have you thought about maybe is there any branches that need to be cut off? Well, yeah, but, you know, or maybe red would be better. Um, you know, or maybe we could like get a, a gold trellis because we want to be really, you know, really impressed. Or maybe we can kind of, you know, we can stamp flowers on there or something like that to make it colorful. It's so much easier to talk that way and to think that way than it is actually to do the work of tending the vine. All right? And those of you that have green thumbs um, probably understand this far better than, than any of us could. All right? So this is, this is really important. Both are needed, but it's so easy for the trellis to become the focus when the trellis is simply the structure that allows the vine to flourish, okay? I have a, I have a, a plant in my backyard that we, we planted well, a couple of years ago. And um, right now, if, if I were to t- take the, the, just the wooden stake out, it would go, it's about this high, it would just go, it would just fall flat. It needs that to stand up. The trellis is there for a reason. But it's not there to be the focus. It's there to be the tool to help the vine or the plant grow. Right? So we've got to be very, very careful. Secondly, based on that, we must see the need to multiply the workforce through Christ-centered, gospel-saturated training. Let me, uh, let me walk you through a few verses of Scripture. Um, I, want, I want you to follow with me. They're all kind of in the same area. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I know that you know this. But 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. There is the word training being used here. It's the Greek word paida, P-A-I-D-A. And the idea of that word training is training for growth. Okay? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be, what? Competent, equipped for every good work. So the goal here then of training, the goal of growth, in this, in this expression, growth is being equipped. 
It means being competent. Okay? 1 Timothy 4.7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So you're, you're pursuing godliness now. So there's this training that is taking place in this pursuit of godliness. It's a training that has the idea of growth in it. Anyone here go to the, go to the, exos- or the gym because you work out? Anyone here? So I'm the only one raising my hand. All right, there's going to be a special meeting of all of you that need to go to the gym after the church day, all right? Some people don't go to the gym. Well, sometimes I guess they do, but you don't go to the gym just because you want to go, you know, ride an elliptical machine. Woohoo! You know, I get to ride a machine, you know. No, you're going with a goal in mind. Now, it may never come true. <laughs> I, I, do think, I do think there are some people that go there to ride whatever, but to be seen. I get that, okay? But... There's a goal in mind. And, and, and this, this training, this exercising toward godliness is, has a purpose of growth. And so as a church, we want to recognize that, that, that we need to be diligent and purposeful about providing training so that people can be growing. Now see, that training could, could become a program that is a trellis that ends up getting the focus. So we've got to be careful, all right? Um, another passage of scripture, Hebrews 5.14, but solid, we read it already, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we want God's people to be growing, and so we teach them and we train them. We train them how to solve their problems biblically. Aha, here's how we, here's how we stop servicing baby Christian mentality. So you have a problem? Yeah, help me solve my problem. Okay, I will not solve your problem, but I will train you so that what? You can learn how to solve your problem yourself. Uh-huh, different thing. See, and oftentimes it's just like, well, serve, serve. I mean, help, solve the problem, as opposed to, well, you know what, you're having this constant problem. I want to train you so that you can you can grow, and you can begin to grasp God's word, and you can apply it to the point that you can solve your problems biblically. So we want to train them how to live and glorify God. All right? Baby Christians need to grow. Well, we need to train them how. This is how you grow. This is how you live. This is how you make wise decisions. Following God does not mean you're walking down the path one day and you're not sure what to do and you look up and you see a cloud and it's in the shape of whatever it is and you go, oh, wow, God is speaking to me. God told me yesterday, Pastor Rod, that I must take this step back a little bit. That's not how we determine God's will. A baby Christian is going to determine things based like that. They're going to determine God's will based on their feelings. And you know what happens in our... Typical American Christian culture, someone says to you, you know, I really believe it's God's will, for example, for me to leave my wife. Well, it's God's will. How can you argue with God's will? Right? It's God's will. Well, obviously you came to the conclusion that something was God's will when it really wasn't God's will. And let me walk you through why it isn't God's will. Very few people are willing to go to that step. But if we're going to be serious about training, we're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. what are you telling me? And whatever the issue might be, let's go to God's word. Let's see what he says. 
Well, that means that you have to have an understanding of how do you approach God's word? How do you study God's word? What are the principles of interpretation that help you come to a conclusion that something is or isn't God's will? And that's the whole point of this Hebrews passage, right? By constant practice, they're able to be distinguishing between what is good and what is evil. Because their discernment has been trained. Friends, that's where we want to be, right? That's that's how we want to uh, approach this whole idea of discipleship. It's not simply, discipleship is not simply, you know, six lessons after you get saved. It's your whole lifestyle. It's your whole pursuit. It's your whole growth. So first, the church must have a radical change in its thinking. Secondly, we must see the need to multiply the workforce through Christ-centered, gospel-saturated training. And here's the, here's the third thing. We have a God-given responsibility to be imitators who are modeling a Christ-centered and gospel-saturated life live for the glory of God. Ooh. Ooh. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking myself, first of all, you mean you guys are supposed to be looking to me as a model, as an imitator? Yikes. Guess what? It's not just my responsibility. It's our responsibility. It's the church's responsibility to be a community where we are modeling and we are imitating Christ. Let me walk you through a few passages of scripture here. Um, Paul, um, in his relationship with Timothy, there's an implication here. The implication is that in order to be able to do that, there must be a relationship going on. You don't just model something without a relationship. You model it with a relationship. Some of you are here, are part of this church, because you have developed a relationship. It's not just because of some theological idea. It's, It's far more than that. All right? And that relationship is built on time. It's built on, uh, on, on discussion. It's built on a number of things. Some of you are here because you are saying, hey, I want to be a part of something that is, you know, has all these various paradigms. But at the same time, jumping in is going to say, I, I, I like some of the relationships that are taking place here because they're relationships that are nurturing me toward Christ-likeness. Here's Paul speaking to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10 and following. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that I happen to be uh, that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. I mean, he, can you have a little bit more exhaustive list, Paul? All right. Yet, um, which which persecutions I endured yet. From them all the Lord rescued me. In other words, he he was following, he was imitating, he was learning from Paul. And then notice what happens to Timothy, because it says, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. In other words, I know I've had an impact on you, but now it's your job to have an impact on other people. So if if I'm supposed to be, you know, the, the, you know, the, the pastor, teacher, or I should say, if the gatekeepers are supposed to be that, or the elders of the church are supposed to be that, you are also to be doing that too. This isn't to stay in one place where the elite people are the ones who are the disciples. We're all discipling. We're all growing. We're all pursuing Christ-likeness, and we all ought to be thinking about what it means to imitate and be an example. 
To Titus, Paul says in Titus 2, 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and soundness or a sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So three words then or expressions. Follow me, be an example, be a model. And then also ultimately Paul speaks to the church. Although what I've shared with you so far is Timothy and Titus in the context of the pastoral epistles, you might say, well, yeah, it's just for you know, Paul and his pastor friends. Oh, okay, um, let's go to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, I love the book of Thessalonians, but here, here you just have just a, a great paragraph on what this looks like. It just, I'm going to read it carefully and slowly making emphasis here. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There's relationship, right? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So ultimately, being imitators of Paul and others that were with him, was really about being imitators of who? Of Christ, okay? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, get this, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Christ, Paul, and those who are ministering with him to the church and then the church to the region, to other churches all over the place. Guys, that, that's who I want Gateway Bible Church to be. That ought to be our prayer. That we are allowing Christ to be our example. And we are following that in our leadership and, and we're dialing it down in our membership. And our membership then is an example to others who are part of the greater body of Christ. So in summary, our goals in training are three C's. Just kind of bring this now to, to a close. Three C's. Should have had that up there. Um, number one, conviction. The goal of training then is to really help each individual with their conviction, meaning that they would, ha- they would learn to, to, to focus on a growing knowledge of God and a growing understanding of the Bible. And, and listen, um, if you're a young and Lord, a baby Christian is going to trust those who are mature around them concerning what is good and what is what is bad, right? Should. And that's built on relationships. I mean, a baby, little child comes to mom, you know, and says, you know, is this, can I eat this, right? And usually they say, no, I'm eating it. And the mom says, no, 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 don't eat that. That's poisonous. So you might want to write this down there. there. There is an appropriate place for, I'll call it this, borrowed convictions. Meaning, a new believer in Christ is going to lean on those who are more mature concerning some aspects of the, the Christian walk because they haven't arrived there yet. They haven't discovered those things yet. But the goal is not that people are living their whole lives with borrowed convictions, but they're, that they've gone to a place where they have their own personal convictions from their own study of the Word of God. You with me there? There's a need for, for, for that to take place. Okay? Secondly, training also means... Um, uh, where the goal here is character. What is the, 
uh, the focus here is on the godly character and life that accords with sound doctrine. So it's not just about their convictions, it's also about what happens and based on those convictions, is it changing their character? Is it, is it affecting how they think? Is it affecting how, what they do? Is it affecting their attitudes? Is, is it affecting their, their affection for Christ and for others? It's all part of character. Interesting, Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine. Life, talking about the application side here just as much as the doctrine, right? And then finally here, the goal is competency. Competency, all right? Where there is a focus on the ability to prayerfully speak God's word to others in a variety of ways. Now, I'm gonna use an illustration that Mark Dever, or sorry, that, that uh, um, Marshall and Payne used in their book, The Trellis and the Vine, simply to, to make a point. And they say this, someone comes to your church and they've been in your church for maybe two months and they come up to you and they say, you know, pastor or maybe you're a church, church worker or leader and they say, you know, we want to get involved in the church, what can we do? Our, our natural response is to step back and filter through all the different programs that the church has. There's children's ministry, there's home groups, there's youth ministry, there's worship ministry, there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this, right? We're so naturally oriented to the structure of things. And what they're saying, and I think this is what we need to hear is, yes, there may be a, there may be a place there, but let's step away from that. Respond to them by saying, hey, y- you see that couple over there, Albert and Julie? They're, they're new in their walk with God. I want you to go out to lunch with them and to build a relationship, to find out what their struggles are, to pray for them, to be a resource to them. But there's no program. How do I do that? I mean, there's, there's nothing to hold on to. But that is, that is living the word of God, the truth of God in the context of the church. It's much more organic using a modern, contemporary word, okay? (laughs) It's much more organic than simply structural. Structural means, yeah, okay, you can work in here and, you know, you can do some details that would have, but it's all, it's all trellis stuff. And what we want to be doing is saying, let's let's get together and, and, you know, one-on-one and small groups and home groups and and encouraging and strengthening and training and, and equipping the body of Christ. There's going to be times when we are going to say, we're going to have an equipping season here because we're going to, we want to really grow and make sure we're on the same page in this particular area. But let's not relegate what it means to grow and to equip as being simply program focused. All right? You see someone in the church that's new or someone who's visiting or, or someone that's being discouraged, you know what? Say, I, I want to build this relationship. A healthy church leaves as a church, doesn't just gather as a church, thinks about one another throughout the week, is engaged with one another throughout the week because there are relationships that are built. And we build that in the context of growing discipleship. Lord, help us today to think through these things on a practical level. We need to see, Lord, that you desire something far different and maybe what we have experienced. Not that, not that we're being radical or we're trying to do something new. Lord, this is simply what you've breathed out in your word, that we would be 
and living, breathing people that are pursuing, equipping, and building up one another. So Lord, help us. Help us to rethink what we're doing. Help us to see the importance of training and influencing and modeling and, and, and imitating. And Lord, help us also to realize that when you call us to be a model or an imitator, you are calling frail, sinful, failing people who even model what it means to sin, to fail, and to be frail. And recognizing that you are God in spite of those failures, in spite of that sin. Lord, may we be genuine before you. May we be genuine, Lord, as we relate to one another. But Lord, help us to cultivate a community that is committed to a biblical discipleship, Lord, because we want a healthy church. And may we take baby Christians who truly are there because they're new in the faith and grow them and nurture them. But Lord, that means that we need to be growing too. So help us, Lord, to have a conviction to do that and to pursue that. We ask in your precious name, amen.